following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Well, good morning, everyone. Hope you are enjoying your 4th of July weekend, um, and thank you for uh, Choosing to be here with us this morning as part of it. And many of you that have joined us online this morning, so glad that you are with us. If you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to take it out and turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 this morning. And I, and I wonder, um, I wonder how you would feel if your entire life story was told in the pages of the best-selling book of all time. Right? How, how might you feel if your story... Every detail of your story was told on the pages of the best-selling book of all time. I have a feeling that you, like me, might not mind so much about those, those very best moments in our story, right? Those moments of our, our greatest triumphs. Um, those moments of our perseverance through adversity. Those moments of our, our tenderness and, and compassion, our, our character, on display, the very best moments, I, I have a feeling you, like me, wouldn't mind so much. But <laughs> I also have a feeling that when it comes to the very worst moments, that you, like me, might feel differently. That I would imagine that none of us here in the room this morning, none of us watching online, would particularly want our very worst moments put on display for the world to see. Well, this is the experience of David. In the Old Testament, we get David's life story, his, his greatest moments, his, his moments of, of victory and, and triumph, his, his moments of, of compassion and, and tenderness, his, his uh, experiences of, of perseverance through adversity. And we also get his very worst moments. This morning, I want to explore with you the question, what do we do with our worst moments? It's interesting that the the Old Testament actually gives more attention to David than than any other figure, save perhaps Moses. That that David's put on full display for us in the Old Testament story. Walter Brueggemann puts it this way. He says, David is the dominant figure in Israel's narrative. Only Moses receives as much attention. But the narratives concerning Moses move in a different direction. More than by any other person, ancient Israel was fascinated by David. Deeply attracted to him, bewildered by him, occasionally embarrassed by him, yet never disowned him. Why is it that so much of the Old Testament is devoted to the life of this man David? Well, I think in part it's because David's story is, in some ways, Israel's story. David, the the underdog, the the shepherd boy who was discovered, the the one that was forgotten by his own father. And and, and David, the underdog, becomes Israel's great king, the the one who brings triumph. that, that, That despite his grave sin, God never gives up on him. David's story is Israel's story, which means David's story is our story. And ultimately, I think the reason the Bible gives so much attention to David's story is because David's story is God's story. 
that we see so much about the character and the grace of God in the story of David. We find ourselves this week in the fourth week in a sermon series called Paths to Peace. This summer, we're spending 13 weeks camping out in that big section in the middle of our Bibles called the wisdom literature. We're spending six weeks in the Psalms, three weeks in Proverbs, and four weeks in Ecclesiastes, the, the wisdom literature that are for us paths to, to peace. And uh, as we've talked about in this series on the Psalms, that, that the Psalms put on display the full range of human emotions that we see in the Psalms, David's highs and lows. And we find that as we look to the Psalms, we see the full range of human emotions, that the Psalms invite us to be honest with God about the fullness of our emotional experience. And this morning, as we look at Psalm 51 together, we're going to see that we're invited by God to be honest with him about the reality of our shame, about the reality of our worst moments. And and scientists have have devised a a foolproof method for determining who deals with shame. You take two fingers and you hold them right about here. And if you feel something pulsing in there, (laughs) right? All of us at one time or another, in one way or another, deal with the reality of shame. All of us experience our very worst moments. What do we do? with our very worst moments. Well, if you know much at all about the biblical story, if you know much at all about the story of David, you know his very worst moment. The story is told in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. David um, is not where he's supposed to be. His men are off in battle, but David is is hanging out at home in Jerusalem on the top of his uh, house. And I've been to that place where you can actually see the way that this ancient city of David is built on a hillside and the palace would have been at the top of the hill. He could look down and see everyone beneath him. And he looks out and he sees a beautiful woman who is bathing and he sends for her. And, and what's really interesting is that back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, um, the, the people of Israel had come to Samuel and asked for a king. They wanted a king like all the other nations. And, and Samuel said, this really isn't a great idea, people. And, and, and the way that Samuel warns them there is six times he repeats this little phrase. He will take, he will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. And we come to the story of David with Bathsheba. It says, and he took her. And after that night, Together, Bathsheba becomes pregnant. Well, David has a problem now because Bathsheba is married to Uriah the Hittite, one of his men who's, who's off fighting. And so David devises a plan to cover up his sin, to, co- to cover up his shame. He, he calls for Uriah to come home, believing that when Uriah comes home, that he'll go to his house, that he'll sleep with his wife, that, she, that everyone will think that, that, that this is his child. Problem solved. Everything goes away. And yet, Uriah is a man of character, recognizing that his friends are off in battle, that he's not going to go home and, and be with his wife. And so David says, okay, this is, this is a problem now. So he devises another plan. He, he, he determines, I'll get him drunk. And when he's drunk, for sure, his inhibitions will be lowered. He'll go home. He'll sleep with his wife. Problem solved. What David hadn't accounted for is that in this moment, 
Uriah drunk has more integrity than David sober. So now he's got a real problem. And he determines to take the plan even further. This is the consummate story of of what preachers have said through the years, that sin will take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. David determines to send Uriah back to the battlefield with a note for his commander, not realizing as he carries that note that it is his death orders. David tells his commander to put Uriah out at the front and then to back off and leave him there to die. Second Samuel 11, we get David's very worst moments. And David keeps this hidden for over a year until he's courageously confronted by Nathan the prophet. You are the man. And David, when his sin is exposed, is, is broken by it. And we see this psalm, Psalm 51, as David's prayer to God in response to his very worst moments. And so look with me there and and let's see what we do with our very worst moments. David writes, verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression, wash away all my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know that my transgression and my sin is always before me against you. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are right in your verdict. And justified when you judge. I think the first thing to observe when it comes to this question. What do do I do with my worst moments? Is to see I must face the truth about myself. In my very worst moments, I must face the truth about myself. Circle or underline these little phrases that start with the word my. My transgression, my iniquity, my sin, my transgression, my sin. This is David facing the truth about himself. Owning up to the reality of what he has done. This is no minimizing, no um, pointing the finger, blame shifting. This is David owning the reality of his own sin. Sitting with the gravity of what he's done. And David faces the painful truth about his actions and accepts full responsibility. And this acknowledgement of our own sin can sometimes be painful. Christine Kane has said it this way. She says, the degree to which you're willing to embrace the pain of recovery is the degree to which you will recover. Are you willing to enter in, to go there, to, to, to embrace the truth, to, 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 to reveal the truth? Um, one old Puritan put it in a, in a particularly memorable way about true repentance. He says, repentance is the vomiting of the soul. That's a particularly uh, memorable way to, this is a terrible question to ask in a sermon, but have you ever had the dry heaves? Yeah, you know what I'm talking, I mean, you just got to get it all out. I mean, I'll never forget, 21 years ago this summer, Kim was pregnant with our first child, and we spent a month in Europe, 19 days on a mission trip and another 10 days traveling around Italy. And I'll never forget in Venice, it was one of the times that she was just the most sick. She was sick the whole trip, but in Venice, she was just miserable. 
And so here we are walking through one of the most romantic cities in all the world. And she's spending most of the time bent over in a corner, right? Just sick as she could be. She had a pair of sandals that were so cute and she'd spent a lot of money on them. And and she never wore them again after that trip because she spent so much time just bent over looking down at her feet. I can't believe I just used dry heaves as a sermon illustration. Um, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad you were here. Embassy City's a great church just down the road. Um, you got to get it all out. Bring it all before God. The degree to which you're willing to embrace the pain of recovery is the degree to which you will recover. David has to face the truth about himself. There's something interesting that he says here. He says in verse four, against you and you only have I sinned. Wait, what? Are you kidding me? David says to God, against you and you only have I sinned. And, and, and we have to go, what? I mean, in one very important sense, this is just wrong, Right? I mean, David has sinned against Bathsheba. He has sinned against Uriah. He's sinned against all who love them. He's sinned against the people that he's leading. So there's a very important sense in which what David says here is just not right. So then, what is the sense in which it's true? He says, against you and you only have I sinned. I think Dan Allender has a great insight into these words from David. Allender says this. He says, the power of shame is never crushed by affirming our goodness and dignity. Instead, it's melted by sorrow when we are overwhelmed by what it exposes in our hearts. Repentant sorrow comes as we pursue shame beyond its horizontal cause and taste the tragic consequences of its idolatrous foundation. In other words, David here recognizes that the sin underneath his sin is ultimately idolatry. David is saying, God, I loved my lust more than I loved you. I loved my, my pleasure more than I loved you. I loved my pride more than I loved you. I loved my reputation more than I loved you. The recognition that the sin underneath all of our sin is the sin of idolatry. And while we must never, never minimize the harm that our sin causes to others, we must recognize this truth, that the sin underneath all my sin is ultimately the sin of idolatry. God, I've sinned against you. Now, I think it's important to just acknowledge this, the fact that, that David spends over a year without confessing his sin to God or to anybody else. David lives with that shame for over a year. And I don't know exactly what David did with it. He speaks in one of the other Psalms. He says, while I kept quiet, my bones wasted away. David says, I was miserable. And I don't know exactly what he did to deal with his shame for that year, but I know what I do. And I know what some of you do. I know perhaps what some of you are doing. 
what we do with our shame. We hide, we blame, we numb, we shame. Right? We hide, we blame, we numb, we shame. We, we hide. We, we, we just don't want anybody to know. And we live in that sense of fear that somebody's going to find out. Shame is incompatible with true intimacy. That we can't really have intimacy with others or, or intimacy with God if we're continuing to hide in shame. And sometimes, actually, we hide from shame with religious performance. I spent 15 years teaching at the seminary, and one of my biggest tasks I felt like was trying to convince people who are preparing for a life of ministry that you don't need to go into ministry to make it up to God. Sometimes our religious performance is a means by which we hide. We hide, we, we blame. We're, we're notorious blame shifters. It can't be me. It can't be my fault. Somebody else did this to me. Who can I find that I can point the finger at? And again, this goes all the way back to the garden, right? We, we, we are notorious for whataboutism, right? We learned it as children. You get in trouble for something. Well, what about what he did? What about what she did? And maybe it looks slightly more sophisticated as we get older. And yet it's the same impulse to try to point attention away from ourselves. We hide, we blame, we numb. David said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. I was miserable. And oftentimes when shame leads to that place of feeling miserable, we look for things that will just numb us to that feeling. And therefore we look around and we see the scourge of addiction, of uh, debt, um, of um, time and time and time and time and time again, different ways, different things that we reach for to try to numb that feeling. We hide, we blame, we numb, we shame. That sometimes what we do when we are feeling shame is that we look to the shameful things in other people's lives. That in order to deflect attention from ourselves, from our own stuff, we look at other people's stuff. Rather than facing our own sin, we look at other people's sin. And some of you maybe grew up in churches, maybe grew up in schools that were just great at this, right? For ways in which we can become preoccupied with other people's sin. So that we could avoid being preoccupied with our own. We hide, we blame, we numb, we shame. But notice here, David doesn't do any of that. My sin, my transgression, my iniquity. What do we do with our worst moments? First, we have to face the truth about ourselves. Second, we have to embrace the truth about God. Right? Notice what David says here. He says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Mercy, unfailing love, compassion. There's some sense in which the only way that David can really face the truth about himself is because of what he knows of who God is. 
He embraces the truth that God is a God of mercy, that God is a God of unfailing love, that God is a God of compassion. When God reveals himself to Moses back in Exodus 34, this passage that we've talked a lot about around here, God reveals himself and we read in Exodus 34, six, and he, that is Yahweh, that is God, passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. This is who God says he is. The first word that he reaches for to describe himself is compassionate, gracious, abounding in steadfast love. And this is exactly what David calls upon God to display in the face of his very worst moment. It's interesting. We talked about the idea that David's story gets more attention in the Old Testament than anybody but Moses. Moses and David both have their lives put on display. Both have their very best moments and their very worst moments put on display. Do you know what Moses and David have in common? They both have blood on their hands. That Moses, in a, in a fit of rage, strikes out against an Egyptian and kills him and then buries him in the sand. This shows us, friends, that God is not stingy with his grace. That God extends his grace, his mercy, his unfailing love to Moses and to David. And God can extend his mercy, his unfailing love, his compassion, his grace towards you. Whatever it is that that you're carrying, God wants to redeem you. God wants to heal you. But, But God can't heal what we don't reveal that we have to bring the truth about ourselves to him, that we need to bring the truth about ourselves to a trusted friend. You don't have to reveal to everybody, but you gotta reveal to somebody, inviting someone who loves you into that struggle, into that place of shame. That God wants to heal you. So, So what do we do with our worst moments? We have to face the truth about myself, to embrace the truth about God, and then finally, You have to ask God to do what only God can do. What do I do with my worst moments? I invite God to do what only he can do. Look what David says in verse five. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Now, what is happening here? You might read that and go, okay, is this David actually sort of blame shifting? Is this David saying, it's not my fault, I was born this way? No, this is David affirming the reality of what in Christian doctrine we call original sin, which is just the idea that we are all born into this sin-scarred world with a bent towards sin, and that we then become really good at it through years of practice. And what David is saying is the reality of sin is so woven into the fabric of who I am. I can't do anything to deal with it myself. And then he goes on in verse seven, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart of God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy 
of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Notice these strong verbs that David invites God to do this work in his life. Cleanse me because I can't cleanse myself. Purify me. Give me a pure heart because my heart is corrupt and I can't do anything about it. Restore to me my joy because shame has stolen it from me. This is David inviting God to do what only God can do. And notice there are these words in verse nine. Hide your face from my sins. There is a sense in which this request is never answered in the affirmative. Right? It's, it's really the, the prayer that we perhaps pray subconsciously more than any other. Don't look at me, God. Don't look at me, God. And that the reality is we live all our lives before God. Even our very worst moments. And yet there is another sense in which this request has been fulfilled. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says something remarkable. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I think that if we think there's some fundamental rupture that takes place between God the Father and God the Son on the cross, we misunderstand the Trinity and we misunderstand the cross. And yet there is some sense in which as Jesus is hanging there, experiencing what feels to him like abandonment, it is, in fact, the Father turning his face away. We sang earlier, And how deep the father's love for us. That the father turned his face away. That as Jesus bore our sin. That he bore the guilt and the shame of our very worst moments upon the cross. Behold the man upon the cross. My sin upon his shoulders. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. He has accomplished the work of redeeming me, of cleansing me, that I need to invite him to do what only he can do in my life. What do I do with my very worst moments? I I know what I often do. I know what many of us do. We hide, we blame, we numb, we shame. But what does Psalm 51 invite us to do with our very worst moments? To face the truth about myself. To embrace the truth of who God is. And to invite God to do what only he can do. For some of you, that needs to happen right now. That this morning, today is the day to face the truth about yourself. Today is the day to embrace the truth of God. And today is the day to ask God to do what only he can do in your life. Will you pray with me? And as we prepare our hearts for communion, this is our opportunity to reflect before God there's anything that we need to bring to him this morning before we partake of these elements. Now is that time.
And so, Father, we thank you that even in the face of our very worst moments, that you were filled with mercy, that you are abounding in unfailing love, that you are the God of compassion. And so with David, we pray, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression, cleanse me from my sin. And God, I pray that, that in these moments of response that you might move in hearts around this room and hearts that are watching online. And God, that for those who need to do business with you today, that we would respond as is fitting. And for all of us, that we would carry this truth with us through the remainder of our days. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.